Well, friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to uh, Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is going to be uh, the text that we consider together this morning. So uh, we, are, we are coming down the stretch here of a summer full of psalms that are about the Exodus. We've been looking at, at what we are calling the songs of redemption, trying to look at how Israel responded to the things that happened in the Exodus story and built their relationship with God as a people around His goodness to them in that event. We trust that that event was bigger than the event itself, but it set a pattern for how God's people could expect to be treated by God. And that it was bigger than just Israel's experience, it also set a pattern that helps us understand Jesus and helps us understand ourselves as, as those who trust in Christ and want to live in light of His love for us now. So one, one, one of the things we've been doing, psalm by psalm, is just trying to understand the different aspects of God's love for us and how to respond to it. Last week, we looked at a psalm that helped us see the goal of the Exodus, the presence of the Lord as the, the, the reason for God's uh, redemption of Israel out of Egypt. He brought them to himself to know what it is to have him for a father. This week, we look at the motive behind what he did. Zooming out like we did last week, this psalm, Psalm 136, shows that behind everything that happened to Israel in Exodus was the steadfast love of the Lord. It's celebrated here remembered here and and response to it is modeled here and what we want to do this morning is try to understand what this psalm teaches us about God and how this psalm calls us to respond to him now before we do that we're going we're to look at three three remarkable truths about God's love and three ways for us to respond pretty straightforward what we're going to do this morning but before we do that and before I read any of this psalm I want to mention something unique about this psalm that you'll see as we work our way through it this psalm uh, is a call and response psalm it's full of lines that say things about God, followed by, in every case, a line of response for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Now, we've, we've, uh, we've, we've already read part of that together as we responded to our confession of sin by reminding ourselves that we've been loved well by God despite it. Uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're, we're not going to do it as a call and response as I read through the whole thing because it's pretty long and that might take long and be awkward for you guys. I don't know. Maybe it would be better if we did, but we're not going to do that this morning. I do want you to notice it, though, as I read through it here in a moment. What you're going to see is an opening that's a call to give thanks and definition of who God is based on God's love for us. And then you'll notice three sections to the song that are about what God has done that show us His love in action in the world. One of them is about creation. The next one is about the exodus. And the next one is about God settling his people in a land that he promised to them. Three steps, big moments in Israel's story of the world, all of them driven by God's love. And then at the very end is a response to God's love, a, 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 a celebration of the fact that God remembered them whenever they needed him, and a call to give thanks again at the end. So what you're going to see, to sum that up, is a psalm that's got a structure unlike any other psalm where God's love is always there, always behind what God has said to do, always motivating his action in the world, and then three examples of him at work in the world. We're going to try to follow the structure of the psalm as much as we can this morning to help you see its beauty and the power of this poetry while we consider what is it about God's love that this psalm wants to teach us and how are we to respond to it. Now, I want to begin by just reading the opening verses of the psalm, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me in, God, in honor of God's word as I do that. I'm going to pick up in verse 1, and I'm going to read to verse 3. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is God's word. You can be seated. So what I mentioned earlier, I want us to spend our time this morning looking at three remarkable truths about God's love before we think about three different ways for us to respond to it. All of this is rooted in this beautiful psalm we're going to work through this morning. Here's the first truth about God's love that this psalm teaches us. It comes out of the verses we've just read together. The first remarkable truth about God's love is that God defines himself by his love. God defines himself by his love. I know that might not immediately land on you, so I'm going to work it a little bit and hopefully make myself a little bit more clear. So did you notice at the very beginning here, this psalm is a call to give thanks to the Lord who's good because his steadfast love endures forever. And then as soon as that call is given, the psalm begins to compare him to other options. Give thanks to the God of gods, we're told. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. And at every turn... When God is compared, when God is, when God is lifted up as the God, big G of God's little G, the Lord, big L of Lord's little L, the thing that sets him off is the steadfast love that endures forever. Now, what we're supposed to take from this opening, I think, is that God's love defines who he is and sets him off from all others. So imagine God as part of a lineup of gods, and you're supposed to identify one. For the sake of analogy, imagine a lineup of the candy of candies, which I think we can all agree is the M&M. <laughs> now, there's different varieties of M&M, so among the candy of candy, imagine a lineup that includes an original M&M, a peanut M&M, and a crunchy M&M. Now, what among this candy of candies is the candy of candies. Obviously, the peanut M&M is the candy of candies. Obviously, because the regular M&M is, though delicious, a little boring after a while. I mean, do you really want a whole pack of those? The crunchy M&M is just an excuse to market more M&Ms because ultimately it's just got an air pocket at the middle of it. I mean, it's a Rice Krispie in there. It just adds nothing except air. So clearly, it's the, the, the peanut is what separates the candy of candies. If you're looking for the candy of candies and there's a lineup of options, you're looking for the one with the peanut inside. Now, now imagine a similar setup here where Israel is living amongst neighbors who have all sorts of other gods that they believe in. Israel often tempted to believe in and trust those gods themselves. And what this psalm is doing is, is arraying a lineup and saying, give thanks to the God of gods. Well, how do we know which one he is? He's the one with the steadfast love. In this lineup, what sets apart the God of gods, the Lord of lords, this psalm is telling us, is steadfast love. He's the only one who's got it. You won't find it anywhere else. Now, this psalm here in the intro, in this call to thanksgiving, is giving us an early draft of what, of what becomes a claim all through the Bible. Building to one of the most familiar summaries of who God is from John's first letter. First John tells us God is love. That's who he is. It defines him. Now, of course, friends, we have to be careful 
we have to be careful in saying that God is love because we're going to be tempted to import our view of what love is and apply it to him. That's something we are all going to be tempted to do, to kind of stretch it out like a skin that you might put over your, you know, the back of your computer or your phone or what have you. Our definition, lay it on top of him and say, look, God is love defined by me. In that sense, we're making love into a God. As someone put it, it's a short step from God is love to love is God where we get to decide what love means and make it into our God. God's love is complex. It won't, we will miss it if we try to impose our definitions of it because it is surprising and different. At many turns, it is different from what our intuitions would suggest. We can't, our, our, our intuitions about what love is can't even accommodate the, the complexity of this one psalm where we're told that God strikes down the firstborn of Egypt for love where we're told that he kills great kings for love. Something about God's love is perfectly compatible with God acting as judge, not to mention the fact that for much of our series in Exodus, we focused on laws that God gives to his people, telling them the difference between things that are good for them and things that aren't. In our culture, friends, we have to be aware that many times the kinds of rules that God's love issues to Israel in the Ten Commandments, we would define as hate. So God's love is not simply our view of love projected onto him, where, whereby love, by our definition, becomes a God. It's not that. But for all those caveats, as careful as we have to be in saying that God's love defines him, that said, when God defines himself for us in the Bible, what he tells us is that he's love. He gets to define what his love means, that's for sure, but it's what he chooses to define himself. There's no better example of this than in Exodus chapter 34, where God is meeting with Moses. He's speaking to him on behalf of God's people. Moses, Moses meets with him to, to hear who he is and what he is calling for from his people. And he wants to see God as he is, and God says that he will speak his name. He will come to him, and he will speak his name. In other words, I will tell you what I am known for. And this is what he tells Moses. The Lord. The Lord. Does that sound familiar? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands. When God defines himself, he defines himself by his love. That's what makes him the God of God's. That's what makes him the Lord of Lords. Now, that first point about God's love, this first remarkable truth, sets up a second point that this psalm points us to about his love. This next point that I want to show you, it comes through in the heart of the psalm. So, so we've been saying that God's love defines him, but one of the ways that we know how his love defines him, one of the ways we see it in action, is not just through what God says about himself, in his word, but through what he does. It's his actions in history that show him to us. It's one thing to hear him say he's love. It's another thing to see what he means by that in what he does. So the three stanzas at the heart of this psalm give us God in action, showing us his love playing out in human history. We can't understand who God is or how we're supposed to relate to him or why the gospel is such good news unless we get the points that this psalm wants to make about what God does and why. So, point number two. The second remarkable truth about God's love is that God created everything for love. 
God created everything for love. I want to begin reading in verse 4 and read to verse 9. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. Friends, what we're supposed to get from these verses is straightforward and clear. God made everything that is. There's only one of him. He made it all. And the reason he made everything that is, is his love. And that makes God and Israel's understanding of him radically unusual in his time. And that makes this portrait of where the world comes from and why it's here radically unusual in our time. Let me say what I mean. You know, the, the, the most common accounts of where the world came from among Israel's neighbors at the time when this psalm would have been written, they emphasized contests among gods that were already around, fighting with one another. It's an act of violence that produces the world for them. Humans specifically were created as a labor force to serve the gods who needed help doing the work, I guess, that they wanted to see done in the world, doing dirty work they didn't want to do. In pagan mythology, the elements of the world, things like that, that are here, we're told, are created by God, things like the sun and the stars and the moon, they're gods themselves. They're acting in the world just like we do. An idea that everything was created by one God and that the reason he created it was love was unprecedented in Israel's time. And now think about how unusual it is in our time, in our culture where our origins are still viewed as mysterious in our culture where, of course, those origins involve physics, they involve chemistry, they unfold in history, but, but, but all of that unfolding comes randomly. It's purposeless and impersonal. We, we, we don't have a reason for being, there's just being. We have really good explanations for how things work. Really, I mean, genius explanations for how things work, even how things develop. But... But we don't have an explanation for the deeper question of why things exist in the first place and what things are here for. And over against every other account of the world I've ever seen or heard, ancient or modern, we get the account of the Bible and of this psalm in particular. Everything that is, here's the account, everything that is, large and small, is because of God's understanding, because of His intentional and personal choice to create and that behind that understanding guiding it behind the intentional and personal choice to create behind all of it is God's steadfast love that endures forever why is this so important it's important because of what it says about the world and because of what it says about God here's what it says about the world that behind its very existence is God's love. When we look at the world around us, we read in everything that is messages meant for us, meant for our good, for our joy, for the glory of the God who made it all. See, see whether or not we, we, we live with a kind of with one of the ancient accounts of where the world came from, where... where all that is sort of happened through 
violent contests among the gods and most of the stuff we see around us is inhabited by those gods or with, with a more modern account of creation where, where the world around us is just randomly evolving. In either case, the natural world isn't speaking to us. Nature is its own end. It just is. But when we see nature as creation, we see it, as C.S. Lewis put it, not as mere datum, but as an achievement. Of course, it's always data. It's at least that. And the data are worth studying. By all means, study the, say, for example, by all means, study the, the geology involved in the creation of Mammoth Cave. Study things like the force and the amount of water and the number of years necessary to carve out this whole thing. It's never less than data. But if, if it's creation, it is so much more than that. You can look at something like Mammoth Cave and marvel at its impressiveness because whatever forces, trackable, researchable, chartable, whatever forces were involved, they were all driven by the intentional and personal choice of the God behind them. And behind his decision to operate on these forces was love. To stop and marvel at the impressiveness of something like Mammoth Cave, which you can't suppress if you really see it, to stop and marvel at it, but not to interrogate it, not to ask of it, what is it here for? What is it telling me? C.S. Lewis says it's like, it's like a child, like being a child so impressed by the postman's uniform he forgets to take in the letters. Because when you see more than just natural processes, you see, when you see more than just the gods at work in the world fighting with one another over turf, what Lewis says is that the world grows more enchanting, not less. Because now, now the wor- world becomes, in his, in his words, a bearer of messages all around. Friends, what this means, that God created everything that is for love, is that every single beautiful sunset you'll ever see is a love letter from God to you. And that's not just anthropocentric arrogance, putting ourselves at the center of it as if it's all for us. We're not saying that. We're saying that it's all by Him, all for Him, but also meant for our good, to communicate His love to, to us. So this, this vision of God's creation of everything for love matters because of what it says about the world. The opportunity it offers us to engage with it. It also matters, though, because of what it says about God. And this is, a, this is another reason for its importance that gets even closer to the heart of the psalm and where the psalm goes next. See, here's the thing. If God created everything that is, and if the reason He created everything that is is His steadfast love, if that's what motivates him to do what he's done. That means he didn't create this world because he needed anything from anyone. This world exists as an overflow of love that's always defined him. A love that he's always enjoyed in himself. Now spilling over to spread the joy of that love even further. You're about to see why this matters so much. Because I want to show you the third remarkable truth about God's love that comes through this psalm in the next two stanzas. The one's about Israel being set free from Egypt and Israel being settled in the promised land. I'm going to read these next two stanzas to you, picking up in verse 10 and reading through verse 22, and you'll see why it's so important that God created everything for love. 
it sets us up to see the third remarkable truth, and it's this. God rescues his people for love. God rescues his people just for love and nothing else. Listen to the, to the song, verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who had divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it for his steadfast love endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. These two stanzas, they're recounting for us the history that we, much of which we covered in our series on Exodus this year. It's a history of God's redemption of Israel from Egypt and his settling of Israel in a new land as their heritage. Line by line hits the high points, most of which we've covered this year. He broke Egypt's hold over them by plagues of power. He led Israel out from among them by his power. He saved them through the sea, divided it so they could walk through it, used the sea to overthrow their enemies who were pursuing them. He guided them through the wilderness. And why? Why did he do all these things? Line by line, followed by the exact same answer. Everything he did for them, every act of rescue, came from his steadfast love, which endures forever. He did all of it, every bit of it, for love. Can you see why that matters so much? What you need to know is what Israel learned from experience. This is a redeemer who is no mercenary. He didn't bring Israel out from Egypt because Israel got up a higher price than Pharaoh was able to muster. He brought them out because he loved them. He didn't give them their land as a heritage because their offer was more attractive than what Og or Sihon could come up with. He asked them for nothing. He heard their cry. He loved them. And then he rescued them for love. Everything God does, God does for love. It reminds me of, of what we considered together in Exodus chapter 3 when God meets with Moses in the burning bush and Moses asks, well, who should I say sent me? And he says, I am has sent you. The one who doesn't need anything, who just exists completely separate from the whole world that he rules over. The I am who just is. And Moses' questions that follow God's giving him of that answer. Hey, when, when Moses begins to push on that answer a little bit, it makes sense to us there. Moses is thinking, uh, why would I expect a God like that who needs nothing from me, who I could never possibly pay off to help me? And the only answer that God gives him when he pushes back with those questions is God's own promise rooted in God's own love. 
The only reason you could expect a God who needs nothing to show up and deliver you is because His steadfast love endures forever. His love is native to Him. It's core to His identity. It's not inspired by anything in the object of His love. It's not like Israel just caught His eye and convinced Him that that they were worth the trouble. And because it's not tied to the worthiness of that object, it's not subject to change. There isn't anything that's going to happen that's going to detach His love from them. This is a love that lasts forever. Everything God does, this psalm is telling us, everything He does, from creation throughout all of redemption, He does for love. Now, how will you respond to a, to a God who's like this? Really, the whole psalm is meant to be a response to, to the celebration of God's love at the heart of it. It's a call to more response from Israel, and, and because it's preserved for us, it's a call to us too. It's here to show us how we're supposed to relate to love like this. And built into the psalm, into its details, into some of the ground we've already covered this morning, I want to show you three responses this psalm calls us to. To a God whose love is steadfast and guides everything that He does. Three responses, three ways for us to respond. What does it look like for us to engage with a God whose steadfast love endures forever, defines who He is, and guides all He does? First, We've got to embrace this love by faith. That's our only first move. You just simply embrace it by faith. You can't earn it. There's no subscription service here. But you can and should embrace it. How do I do that? That sounds great. How do I do it? I think that the final verses of the psalm point the way. I'm going to read verses 23 to 26. We read these earlier in our service in response to our confession, I want to read them again and show you the response that these verses give us to what the psalmist told us about God's love. Verse 23, It is He, this God, who remembered us in our low estate, for His steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for His steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for His steadfast love endures forever. I think it helps to get the full impact of this response right here. I think it helps to read it from beginning to end. If you start, or rather from end to the beginning. If you start in verse 25, read in reverse, I think you'll start to see the awe that's built into it from Israel. He who gives food to all flesh remembered us in our low estate. You see that? The God who rules over everything the God apart from whom nothing on earth lives and breathes. The God who feeds everything that is remembered us when we were low and had nothing to offer. Why would he? And the only explanation comes line by line by line. His steadfast love endures forever. You see it? The God who who created everything that is, not to supplement something that was missing in himself, not to spawn some sort of free labor source, not to create some sort of trade partner for himself, but simply for love. This God remembered us when we had nothing. These verses in their own way are just simply awestruck 
And they show us the only posture that makes sense, the only way to embrace God's love. You've got to have something of what this psalmist had, this awe over the gap between you and your need and God and his resources closed by the love of God. Friends, a God who creates for love, not for need, doesn't want to barter with you. He gives food to all flesh. Nobody feeds him. And yes, for a moment at least, getting that is why we're astounded that he would love us. He would love lowly people with nothing to offer him. And at first blush, that should be astounding that the God of all creation who feeds all flesh loves the lowly. But I think part of that is built into that reaction, to that, to that awe that we're meant to feel. It, it's sometimes even a, a deceptive misunderstanding of who God is and how he cares for others. One of the things that we can be awestruck by is the idea that, that God would, would possibly look to us for something. That, that we, we, we can impose on him our understanding of what it is to get something from somebody who's above you. That you've got to make it worth their while. Because what we, t- what we think about people who are above us is that their resources are limited. They've got to use them well. They've got to consider what they can get in return. So I've got to show them why a deal with me is sweeter than a deal for somebody down the, down the street. But an unlimited God, friends, it's only a God who feeds all flesh that has the resources, has the power and the ability, the freedom to give to the lowly. He doesn't need anything. So the, low is, the lowly are where he works. That's his space. Only a God who is this independent and free, only a God who feeds all flesh could draw near to the low in their low estate to give them what they can't get anywhere else. This is a pattern that the psalm has running all through it and it's a pattern that runs all through the Bible. The God who has all, who needs nothing, giving freely to those who are low and know it. It shows up again and again in the history of God's dealings with Israel. And friends, it prepares us for what we see in the gospel of Jesus. What you need to know about what it means to trust in Christ is that it starts with you recognizing you've got nothing to offer him in return. If you think you can barter your way into God's good graces through Jesus, then you've got it all wrong. The whole story of the Bible is teaching you that's just not who he is. You have nothing you could offer him. Even if you perfectly obeyed him for your whole life. Nothing beyond his word to you would guarantee you that you would have anything good coming to you. God exists free from any obligation he doesn't impose on himself. And the only thing he's told you that matters, the one thing you need to know, is that despite your sin against him, despite the fact that you have not given him the honor that he deserves, when you were in your low estate, He came. Titus 3 puts it wonderfully and echoes this song. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. There's the lowest state. That's where we were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Why? Not because of works done by us in righteousness. The God who feeds all flesh doesn't need that from us. But according to his own mercy. It's his mercy that guides everything that he does. Of course, 
We're called to honor him with our ways. Of course, obedience is what we owe to him, but not as a price that we pay to enjoy his love. Faith in him means accepting that you can't earn or buy this kind of love. It means embracing, too, the news that you don't have to. Because the lowest state where you find yourself this morning is where God works. Friends, there's no pecking order at the foot of the cross. There's only those of lowest state who get it, who accept it, who don't try to pretend it's not true, who are then washed clean and made new by the steadfast love of the Lord. The first response this psalm guides us to is a response of embrace, to simply accept the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases and rescues those who will trust in him. Here's the second way this psalm guides us to respond. We're guided to remember his love together. To embrace his love by faith, but also to remember his love together. When you embrace this love by faith, you're still going to need help to remember its truth. Honestly, that's the function of this whole psalm in Israel's life. It was sung over and over with the community to drive the point in, to make sure it sticks. It's one reason it's so repetitive. And by the end of this psalm, you get the point. It's about God's steadfast love. It makes it harder to forget it when you sing it over and over and over, as Israel did. And the reason that this psalm and psalms like it are so important is that all of us at one time or another are going to have reason to forget the truth at the heart of this. We're going to face things that make us wonder what God's doing, why he's doing it. And we're going to need to remember that everything God does, God does for love. We'll face things that make us wonder if perhaps he doesn't love us anymore. And we'll need to remember that his love that guides all he does lasts forever. One of the best illustrations of this principle at work in Israel's life, the call to remember, the community work of remembering and why it's so important. Uh, One of the best illustrations I know of comes from the book of Lamentations, which we considered together this time last year, last summer. It's a, a prophecy written by one who watched the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem at the time was the object of Israel's highest hopes. It was the center of God's work in the world through them. It's what they looked to for, for confidence. It's what provided them safety and perspective and hope. And this prophet watched Jerusalem turn to rubble. The people who lived in it scattered. Their world turned to ashes. And all because Israel deserved that punishment and brought it on herself. That's what Lamentations is about. It's a dark book. It's it's a hard read. But at the middle of the book, at its center point, at perhaps its darkest chapter, the writer remembers what no doubt he sung with his people probably all his life. Whether he read this psalm, we don't know when the date was, but this, the, the, the theme at the heart of this psalm would have been echoing through Israel's life together long before this psalm ended up on paper. This prophet who'd come by these lines through experience, through the repetition of his community, through his people at the center of his darkest day and one of the Bible's darkest books says, this I call to mind. Lamentations 3. Therefore I have hope. What did he remember? What did he call to mind? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new. Every morning, great is your faithfulness. 
he's remembering Psalm 136, the, the heart of this psalm, echoing down through Israel's life together. And you are going to need this remembering. And your friends are going to need help with this remembering. Because like Israel, your life is going to play out in the not yet of all of God's promises. There are so many promises that we've received partial fulfillment for, but not all the way. We've we've been promised that our sin's power has been crushed by Jesus. We trust that. We experience some of that, but its power still lives on inside of us. We've been promised a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more sorrow or pain or death anymore. And we see some comfort from our life together and from God's goodness in our, in our, our hardest days, but we don't live in that world yet. It's not yet. And like Israel, you're going to need help to remember that God has not given up, has not changed his mind, has not abandoned his project, has not stopped paying attention, and is certainly not toying with your life. Because from the creation of the world to the giving of his only son to save sinners, all the way down to his administration of the minutest details of your life, God's steadfast love guides everything he does and his love endures forever. There's one final response that the psalm points us to. It calls us to give thanks for his love always. To embrace his love by faith. To remember his love together. And then to give thanks for his love always. Look at the last verse. It starts where, or it, rather it ends where it began. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 26. It's at the beginning of the psalm. It's implied all through the middle of the psalm. And here it is, right here on the page at the very end of the psalm. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. When his love is set on you, when you've done nothing to deserve it, when you have no hope of returning it, when you cannot live without it, and then realize that he's actually given it to you. Thanksgiving is the only reasonable response. Every day, all day. It's like if realism about your lowest state and awareness of God's love for you had a baby. Thanksgiving is what it would be. When I'm not thankful, what that means is, here's the way to put it, when I'm not thankful, one of those two things has been obscured in my life. I've either lost sight of my lowest state Or I've lost sight of God's love for me in Christ. Either I've come to believe that I deserve better. Or I've come to believe that God hasn't delivered for me. And I'm not recognizing the unimaginable scale of his love that comes through this psalm verse by verse. Have you found yourself complaining a lot lately? You might consider asking yourself these questions. Do I think I deserve better? Have I maybe lost sight of my true condition before God? And then ask yourself, where do I see God's love in my life now? Where has He remembered me? How have I been rescued? Be specific. Be as specific in finding those evidences of His goodness in your life as you're naturally going to be in cataloging the things that you wish were different. And use Psalm 136 as your friend and companion while you do that work. Because its purpose is this. 
to remind you that the God who is love does all he does for love. His love endures forever. And it's all yours if you'll take it. Father, I pray that you would help us to embrace this love today and to live with it as our whole habitat so that everything we experience, we experience through it. We pray that you would overcome what in us resists taking this love for free rather than earning it. That you would overcome what in us sees more clearly the things that we wish were different about our lives and the things you've given to us by your grace. Overcome in us what, what barriers we put up to the full and free experience of your love daily. And we pray that you would give us what Christ has purchased for us as our everyday experience. The freedom that comes from knowing that we have had steadfast love set on us and nothing can change it. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.